welcome to If Not Us. I'm your host, Sarah Ackerman. In our second episode of Uniquely American Problems, we're sharing a chat with Lily Milwitt, attorney for the Housing Not Handcuffs Initiative from the National Homelessness Law Center. The National Homelessness Law Center is dedicated to using the power of law to end and prevent homelessness and to protect the rights of people experiencing homelessness. We talk about the assumptions people have about being unhoused and what's at risk when you don't have permanent shelter. And we talk about the cost to the taxpayers when someone is unhoused in their community. And not to spoil the episode, but housing folks actually saves taxpayers money. Not just a few bucks, but tens of thousands of dollars year over year. Let's dive in. So what led you to get involved in justice reform? So my grandparents are South African and my mom was born there, immigrated to the United States when she was young. So, and they were anti-apartheid activists, which was part of the reason that they left in the 1970s. They just didn't see really a path forward for South Africa. Um, So I always kind of say that I grew up with resistance in my blood. It was very much part of my upbringing to question institutions, to not sort of take for granted that, you know, laws and folks in charge are doing the right thing and to sort of do what you can to intervene when you can. Both my parents were public school teachers growing up. So I also was sort of predisposed um, and always sort of, you know, gravitated toward public service. And then, you know, in, in undergrad was just really intentional about learning as much as I could about different aspects of social justice. And, you know, that sort of led me to law school where that passion and commitment just continued. And that's kind of where I'm at. And so what led you specifically to join the National Homelessness Law Center? Sure. So coming into law school, I thought that I wanted to do, you know, I knew that I wanted to do social and economic justice work, and I wasn't exactly sure the avenue that I wanted to do that and sort of the entry point into that world that would make the most sense. So all throughout law school, I was really deliberate about trying to get sort of a diverse set of experiences. My first summer of law school, I worked on behalf of kids in the child welfare system in New York City. My fall of my second year, I did like affordable housing and healthcare work. And Then, you know, I did like juvenile legal work and, you know, affordable housing and family law work for low income folks in Washington, D.C. Like I did a whole range of different things. And through all of those different things, I really learned that housing is really what I call step zero of any sort of social, economic, racial justice work. You know, we can do really important and great work when it comes to like educational equity and health equity and all of these other things. But if people don't have a safe, reliable place to call home, then none of that is really going to matter. And I just came to realize in doing work in the child welfare system and doing like pregnancy discrimination work and all of these different other things that so many people lacked access to affordable, reliable, safe housing, and that that was really always going to be an impediment to their access to opportunity and their ability to really plan their lives and their future. And so I became really invested in looking at homelessness and poverty and the criminalization of homelessness and poverty. And National Homelessness Law Center had a fellowship opening when I was applying for jobs during my last year of law school that I applied for and got. And that's uh, how I ended up there. That's a really lovely merging of like your passion and an opportunity to put it into action, which a lot of like, that's so hard to find. Yeah, yeah. I I feel very lucky that I landed where I did, especially coming out of law school. And I know a lot of people, you know, looking at like their first job out of law school or out of, you know, any graduate school or undergrad have to, you know, a lot of times make compromises around like 
this isn't exactly what I want to be doing, but this is, you know, what I got, or this is what the market is telling me to do. And I was, you know, really privileged in a lot of ways that I graduated without a lot of student debt um, and had, you know, a good enough safety net that I didn't have to necessarily go like the corporate law private route and could sort of make that financial sacrifice. That definitely came from a place of privilege, but I feel very lucky that I got to do, I'm still getting to do the kind of work that I always wanted to do and always hoped that I'd be able to do. So what is something you wish more people knew about being homeless in America? A couple of things, um, a lot of things really, but I think a, a couple of the main ones are that homelessness is not the result of individual bad choices. I think that that belief system is super pervasive and is really what gets in the way of us making meaningful change when it comes to addressing homelessness in our country and in the world, I think. People think, oh, you know, you've ended up in this situation because you've made a series of bad choices and, you know, a lot of mythologies around like all people who are unhoused are, you know, lazy or don't want to work or have substance abuse problems. And those things just aren't true. And, you know, if to the extent that, you know, there are people who experience homelessness who also have substance use disorder or who also are unable to gain, you know, employment, those things are not causes of homelessness, if anything, they're effects of homelessness. And so I wish that more people understood that, you know, pervasive homelessness in our country is the result of structural oppression, the result of histories of enslavement and segregation, the result of policy choices made at the federal, state, and local level that deliberately exclude people from access to housing. And, you know, those are the causes of homelessness. And I definitely wish more people understood that because systemic problems require systemic solutions. But when we individualize um, homelessness and poverty, then we think that, you know, there's no onus on governments and on systems to make the kind of changes that we need. And the other thing I wish people knew about being unhoused in America is that it really affects like every aspect of your life. As I said, housing is step zero to any kind of access to opportunity, social, racial, and economic justice. So if you're unhoused, it doesn't just mean that you don't have a place to call home. It also means that you're not going to be able to get medication. You're not going to be able to get mail. You're not going to be able to receive a lot of public benefits that require a permanent address. You might not be able to vote if you don't have an ID, if you don't have a permanent address. Um, you're probably not going to be able to get access to employment if you don't have a permanent address. You're not going to be able to parent in the way that you want to parent if you want to start a family, if you want to do all of these other things. And so I wish people really understood sort of how all-encompassing homelessness can be. And I think that if more people understood that, that would definitely add a sense of urgency to addressing this problem. I think it would also address some empathy where it's seeing people make the choices that they're being forced to make, because like you said, this isn't, it wasn't just a choice where someone's like, oh, I'm going to be unhoused. That is the choice I have made for my life. It's a lot of other choices or a lot of other factors that have played into like, this is the end result. So much of it is outside of their control that when you kind of take a step back and understand that bigger picture, it's harder to judge, harder to have uh, any sort of negative feelings for someone when you like, when you're able to see the bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. I think our organization always says homelessness is not the result of poor choices. It's the result of having no choices. And then I also have heard the saying in this space that being poor is the most expensive thing you can be because everyone else is always making choices for you or your choices are kind of imposed on you by the systems under which you're forced to live. And so in that way, it's a very expensive way of living, not in the financial sense, but 
just in the sense that, you know, you are forced to sacrifice your autonomy, independence, dignity, all of these things that those of us who might be traditionally housed take for granted, you know, the fact that we can like lay down if we want to lie down and not worry about being arrested, the fact that we can eat food where we want to eat food and not worry about being criminalized for that, the fact that we can, you know, easily get from point A to point B and not, you know, have to worry about all the implications that might come with like leaving all of my belongings behind, just like things like that, where, you know, every single aspect of your day to day, every single choice that you make, which is not, as I said, not necessarily like a choice that you're making in the way that many of us think about choices is affected by being unhoused. And the fact that this is like a very solvable problem, um, (laughs) housing solves homelessness. And I, I know we'll get to some of those solutions. So what is the future that the National Homelessness Law Center is trying to create? So primarily, we're trying to create a world in which housing is seen as a human right, not as a privilege. That can look like a lot of different things. But at the international level, the right to housing has been recognized by the UN. And so part of what we're trying to do in our country is change both the rhetoric and like, you know, the way that people talk about homelessness and housing to think about housing not as something that, you know, you have to be super privileged to be able to access, but something that everybody automatically should have access to. And then, you know, also implementing that kind of rhetoric and thinking into the way that we make policies around housing and entitlements to housing around the way that we plan affordable housing development and grants and funding at the federal level for homelessness services and housing. Homelessness is not something that should exist or that needs to exist. We take for granted that, you know, homelessness is just like a facet of American culture and American life, particularly, um, you know, in in a lot of major metropolitan areas, but of course, also in rural areas, it's still there. It just looks different. And, you know, I think if you were like an alien who came to the world and didn't, you know, necessarily know everything that we know about the way that American culture operates. And this is, of course, the case in other countries as well. But like, if you just didn't know about homelessness as something that was built into the way that we operate, and you saw how much money and wealth and excess we have, and then you saw homelessness, I think you would be like, really confused and aghast. And so that's like how I operate. um, And how I move through the world is like, why on earth do we have like these high rise buildings and this extreme, extreme, extreme wealth? And then we have homelessness and poverty. It just doesn't make sense and it doesn't need to be that way. So what are the barriers getting in the way of that kind of move forward towards housing being a human right? Well, I think the barriers are primarily some of the things that we've already talked about, which is that people, you know, writ large, um, and this is true of people, you know, on both sides of the aisle, people in rural and urban places, you know, people of all different political affiliations, that people just generally think that homelessness is a, is a result of individual choices and the result of individual failures. And so they don't view the response to homelessness or the solutions to homelessness as being something that the government needs to address, as being something that, you know, we as a country need to address communally and, you know, in, in collaboration with all of our different agencies and government systems. They don't see it as something that taxpayers should have to worry about. And, you know, people's primary concern when it comes to homelessness, and again, this is true of people you know, of of all different ideologies is like aesthetics and whether homelessness affects their property values, whether homelessness affects, you know, how their neighborhoods look and not how homelessness affects the people experiencing homelessness. So I think that kind of like self, you know, self-centered view of the world, individualistic view of the world, which is very American by nature, is really what's preventing 
movement on this issue. And then, you know, the other big thing is that politicians and people who fund and support politicians don't see people experiencing homelessness as like a valuable political block. And that's, you know, a result of the reality, which is that many unhoused people don't vote because they can't vote, um, because they don't have IDs, because they don't have permanent addresses, and because they just aren't seen as a politically powerful group of people. And so the result is that, you know, you'll seldom see a political campaign that's going to make homelessness like a key priority when, you know, those political political, um, policymakers don't necessarily see unhoused people as having a lot of, like, political power. And they think that, you know, it might upset people who do have political power, which are like the HOAs and the business improvement districts and the businesses that care, again, about aesthetics and about how their communities look and the property values associated with, you know, having homelessness populations or having homeless shelters or having affordable housing. Yeah, because I'm sure that if someone was willing to make that a a tentpole of a campaign of like, we're going to address this issue, the next question is how And then however that answer comes about, someone is going to be perceived as being negatively impacted by it because like the not in my backyard, the NIMBY of it all of just, sure, we would love to have a shelter where people could be housed. So because they deserve to be housed or however affordable housing, however that looks. But if that means it's going to negatively impact me, I'm not going to vote for it because it's me and I'm, I'm more important than whatever's going on down the street. And that's terrible. Yep, exactly. So what are the risks when you're unhoused? So I mentioned some of them previously, but really everything you can think of, like if you think of yourself and how you, you know, go through your day and how you go through your life, all of those things are at risk and are compromised when you don't have access to reliable housing. So of course, like what we call life-sustaining activities, so like sleeping, resting, sitting, lying down, if you are unhoused and particularly if you are unsheltered, those are not things that you can just do oftentimes and we have a lot of statistics on you know the number of cities and states that criminalize this but in many many major metropolitan areas sitting lying down sleeping in public spaces is a misdemeanor or you know otherwise against the law and so people can be fined for it they can be arrested for it they can be harassed or threatened for it and even if those laws aren't on the books they can still often be harassed by private citizens they can still be harassed by law enforcement just telling them to you know move along you can't be here and so all of those things those sort of life sustaining activities are at risk and then of course as we mentioned voting um, a lot of states that require voter id laws you can't get an id if you don't have a permanent address even if states don't require an id to register to vote they'll often still require a permanent address so if you don't have that you're not going to be able to register to vote Plus, if you've already been, you know, criminalized for sleeping outside, then you have a criminal record and then you're further disenfranchised. Um, You can't get a driver's license. You often can't receive mail. Um, So that, you know, includes like the stimulus checks when we all got them in 2020 and 2021. It might include public benefits. It might include medication. It might include just correspondence that you want to have with family or friends, receiving packages and things like that. Really hard to access employment if you don't have a permanent address because they're going to want a place to send your paycheck. um, And they're going to want you to fill out, you know, all the standard like W2, W9 forms that you have to fill out. And without a permanent address, that is really hard to do. And that includes like gig work and minimum wage work. They need you to have a permanent address still. So when people say like, oh, just go get a job at McDonald's, um, McDonald's requires you to have a permanent address to apply for a job. 
safety, of course, you know, you are exposed to the elements. So both, you know, hypothermia and dehydration and overheating, but also you have no protection for yourself. And so we see, you know, hugely disproportionate rates of sexual assault, of physical assault, of theft for people who experience unsheltered homelessness and a lot of violence against people experiencing homelessness, both by law enforcement and by private citizens. And I'm sure that there's a lot more that I'm not thinking of. It's truly all encompassing, like being unhoused. Yeah, that's already like a huge laundry list of things that folks that are housed that can kind of go about their day to day don't need to worry about, like leaving your stuff out at home. Or if you have, like, even if you have pets, like, where do you put them? Like, my dogs are just chilling at home. Like, I don't have, that's not an active thought process that needs to be dealt with. And when those things do become hiccups, like uh, just in a a day-to-day basis, like that is already such a burden to have to like figure out in a housed person's life that to have that be just one part of your day to have to figure out and the rest of it's just kind of trying to meet those basic needs is like what you've already mentioned of the um, like, oh, just get a job at McDonald's seems so overly simplistic as a solution of just, I don't think anyone's saying like, no, I don't want to work. I would prefer this lifestyle. Like it's more of a barriers getting in the way to even accessing that baseline of being able to sustain yourself. Yeah. And the, and the other thing about employment I'll just add is when people are living in shelters, often it's not guaranteed that you can stay the next night. So if you're not like in line at a certain time by the next day, you might not get a bed that night. If you leave the shelter, you can't leave your stuff there. So you'd have to bring it all with you for the hours that you're not allowed to be at the shelter. If you have to go to a job or if you're living in like in an encampment site, again, you don't want to leave all of your stuff unattended. If you leave, um, it's possible that someone's going to take your stuff or that someone's going to take your spot. And so all of these things also really contribute to people not being able to get gainful employment or traditional employment. And so, you know, this is another thing that I wish, you know, back to your last question before of like what I wish people knew, you just hear so many people saying like, oh, just go get a job. And besides the fact that like working minimum wage in most major cities still is going to probably leave you precariously housed or homeless, you know, you can't afford like anything, you know, remotely acceptable housing in most major cities making minimum wage. But even besides that fact, like, really ask someone who's, I try to really ask someone who says that, like, pretend you're living outside, like, take me through the steps that you would go through to go to work. Like, and when you force someone to really confront the fact that, like, these systems aren't set up to accommodate people who are unhoused, they might start to understand that it's a really ridiculous proposition to say, like, oh, just go get a job. So I know that y'all are working in three areas, housing, youth homelessness, and criminalization. So let's dive into that. I know when we had chatted earlier, like we talked about like just the, something that I was not as aware of, of um, the criminalization of homelessness. What does that look like? Sure. So yeah, the National Homelessness Law Center is essentially uh, split into three programmatic buckets. As you mentioned, housing. Um, which includes our access to affordable housing work, ensuring that people are not unjustly evicted, creating source of income protection so that people have access to um, housing choice vouchers and are able to use those vouchers in the private market, et cetera. Our youth work, which includes ensuring that youth who experience homelessness, A, don't experience homelessness, but also have access to all of the educational and other opportunities that any other youth would have access to. And then the primary bucket that I work in, criminalization of homelessness. So Essentially, criminalization of homelessness, just to give sort of a broad definition, is like 
any policies, practices, or things that state actors do that make it impossible or illegal for people to exist in public space while being homeless. So oftentimes, these types of criminalizing laws look like ordinances that make it illegal to panhandle in public spaces, ordinances that make it illegal to sleep or sit down in public spaces, ordinances that make it illegal to loiter in public spaces, ordinances that make it illegal to have tents in public spaces, to reside in your vehicles, um, to share food in public spaces, all of these many different kinds of things that explicitly are targeting people experiencing homelessness. And then we also have a lot of like more insidious laws that still criminalize homelessness. So for instance, like trespass nuisance laws that are often not necessarily written to criminalize people experiencing homelessness, but are often weaponized and used in that way. And then also like laws that prohibit um, standing in roadways or, you know, as I mentioned, loitering laws can often be used to tell people to move along or to criminalize people who are standing in roadways or loitering because they have nowhere else that they can be. And so we look at all of those kinds of policies and practices that local, state, and federal governments do and try and work with advocates to get those laws off the books and to get those practices out of practice um, and replace them with laws and policies and practices that prioritize housing and that make housing a human right. Um, And we do that through policy advocacy and impact litigation and coalition building and messaging campaigns and public education and and all of these different ways. That's awesome. One of the things that hadn't crossed my radar at all, but was extremely horrific to to hear about is uh, Martin versus the city of Boise. Can you tell us what that is and what happened with it? Yeah, absolutely. So Martin v. Boise is sort of the seminal case law in the area of criminalization of homelessness. That case was a Ninth Circuit decision, so a federal court decision in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, The Ninth Circuit encompasses California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii, and Alaska, and I might be missing a couple other states, uh, Idaho, obviously, Um, but like kind of the Northwest region of the country. And that case basically was the first case that brought Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment claims to try and challenge an outdoor camping ban. And so for the first time, a federal circuit in that case said that it is cruel and unusual punishment to criminalize outdoor life-sustaining activities if there are no indoor alternatives. And the reason for that is that it's basically criminalizing um, a lack of choices, as we mentioned. So there's a Supreme Court case from way before Martin v. Boise called Robinson, And Robinson was the first case that said that it's cruel and unusual punishment to criminalize status versus conduct. So you can criminalize conduct, the act of doing something illegal, but you can't criminalize someone for who they are or how they are. Um, So that case was about addiction. And there was a, a statute that was challenged in Robinson that criminalized basically the status of being an addict. And so the Supreme Court said you can criminalize the conduct of using illegal drugs, but you can't criminalize someone for being an addict because that's criminalizing status. And there's, you know, a component of involuntariness that you're criminalizing, which is essentially cruel and unusual punishment. So Martin B. Boise was sort of based on that line of cases where it's saying you can't criminalize the status of being homeless and you can't criminalize things that people have to do to survive. And by nature of being homeless, they have to do them in public spaces unless you can prove that there's adequate indoor alternatives. So that caveat is really important and does kind of narrow the holding. So in places where you can say that you have enough shelter beds, 
um, for people to use, then technically you can under Martin criminalize outdoor camping. But if you if you don't have enough shelter beds, if you don't have enough indoor alternatives under Martin v. Boise, you cannot criminalize life sustaining activities that have to take place outdoors. And so that's what Martin v. Boise said. It's a Ninth Circuit decision, so it's only binding in jurisdictions in the Ninth Circuit, but we have used it just as persuasive reasoning in other circuits. And of course, other circuits in the country are well aware of Martin, um, but they just aren't necessarily bound by it. Are there, I don't want to say like giving a specific number, but on the whole, do most cities and places have like enough shelter beds or enough affordable housing to prevent those uh, life-sustaining activities happening outside to be criminalized? Or is it that's not just not the case. Like there's just not enough support. There's not enough beds. There's not not enough indoor alternatives as they called it. Yeah. So most states definitely don't have enough indoor alternatives. A lot of major cities are getting to the point where they can claim that they have enough indoor alternatives. And a lot of them will point to the fact that they might have like empty shelter beds on, on an average night. The reason why it's really hard to make that claim and not that, you know, courts very much will like generally accept those claims. But the only way that we really have to methodologically count homelessness is what's called the point in time count. And that's done once a year on one night of the year, people who are designated in a particular community go around and literally count the number of people who are sleeping outside. That's not a good metric for a number of reasons. A, it's it's once a year. And so you don't know, you know, the number might be different like the next week. B, a lot of people experience homelessness, not necessarily outside. So people who are like couch surfing, people who are outside, but might just not be like visible to the people going around and counting. People who live in their vehicles are not going to be counted in those kinds of point in time counts. And so often when we use those point in time counts, it's a significant undercount of the actual number of people experiencing homelessness in a given community. So then when states or cities use that number to say we have enough shelter beds to accommodate that point in time count number, they don't actually have enough shelter beds to accommodate all of the people who are actually experiencing homelessness. The other reason why it's really hard to say that you have enough shelter beds is because shelter is not a viable option for a lot of people for a lot of different legitimate reasons. And that's one of the claims that we're like trying to make as we think about how to expand Martin and and make it, you know, a little bit more powerful and beyond the Ninth Circuit is like, Congregate shelter is often unsafe. It's often, you know, like a hotbed for assault and for theft. They're often segregated by sex, which makes it not realistic for families, for couples, for people who identify as transgender or non-binary and don't want to be sex segregated. It's really hard to store your stuff if you have a lot of stuff. You can't shelter with pets. If you're someone who has a disability, a lot of these shelters are not going to be accessible. If you're someone with chronic illness, again, not accessible. Shelters aren't necessarily in, you know, places where people want to be. Like they might be, you know, segregated in in an area of the city that's not near community, that's not near other service providers, that's not near grocery stores or, you know, things that people need access to. And so there's a lot of very legitimate reasons why even if a shelter bed is theoretically available. Somebody who's living outside might not want to be there. And it's our belief that they still should not be criminalized just because a shelter bed is theoretically available for them. You know, again, when we talk about homelessness being a lack of choices, someone shouldn't be forced to go to a shelter bed just because it's there. Um, if somebody chooses to be outside, they're making the best decision that they can given the circumstances that they're living under. And we should trust that, you know, adults know how to make choices for themselves and can make the right choices for themselves. And to say, like, you have to go to this specific shelter bed 
or else we're going to arrest you for being outside is like very paternalistic and very inhumane and strips away, you know, any semblance of autonomy and dignity that people do have when they're sleeping outside or living unsheltered. So yeah, this was a, a long answer to your question, but this that's kind of the component of Martin that makes it very narrow is that cities that can show that they have enough shelter beds can kind of skirt the Martin v. Boise decision by saying, well, we can still criminalize outdoor sleeping or outdoor sitting and lying down because we have, you know, 30 shelter beds to accommodate the 30 unhoused people in our neighborhood. And, you know, A, they probably have a lot more than 30 unhoused people. And B, those 30 people might not want to go to shelter for any number of reasons. It doesn't give you free reign. Well, it does under the law, but it shouldn't give you free reign to make it illegal for them to exist. Yeah. So along those lines of the criminalization of homelessness, tell me about the Housing Not Handcuffs initiative that you're working on. Sure. So um, Housing Not Handcuffs is a campaign that's housed at the National Homelessness Law Center. It was started around 2015 as sort of a collaboration between our organization and several other uh, local, state, national organizations, public officials, and advocates working in the field. And it was basically a response to rising criminalization. So criminalization was, you know, always a component of the work that the National Homelessness Law Center did, but there was never sort of like a nationwide coalition that was really solely focused on criminalizing homelessness or ending the criminalization of homelessness, I should say. And so Housing Not Handcuffs is a campaign. You can endorse it on our website, housingnothandcuffs.org. We have a lot of different networks that operate within Housing Not Handcuffs that focus on policy, on litigation, on different things. And we convene people. And it's sort of like a meeting space for people to collaborate on decriminalizing homelessness, to talk about different ways that we can work on decriminalizing homelessness, to share best practices and experiences to add capacity to people who may be working, you know, on their own in a particular place and, you know, have that sort of national network. Um, We do a lot of policy advocacy through the campaign, and we also engage in coalition building, of course, and litigation at public education and all of those different things. Awesome. So that's a very important thing to solve for a lot of the issues that we were just talking about of, like, why criminalization, it just doesn't make sense. To take it in a different direction, aside from like the kind of like the empathy angle of just like these are human beings, they deserve to have choice, they deserve to have a say in how their their lives go. How much does it cost taxpayers? Like to take it in a completely different just financial angle, how much does it cost taxpayers every year to criminalize homelessness? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And we know that money is what moves the needle for a lot of people. Um, A lot of people are reticent to create you know, housing as a human right programs or affordable housing programs because of how much it's going to cost their community. But the reality is, and the evidence shows us that criminalizing homelessness and, you know, allowing homelessness to exist costs much, much, much more um, than providing affordable housing to people who need it. Um, That's because when people live outside, the costs of things like, you know, hospital stays, putting them into jail, providing welfare services and homelessness services, all of those costs fall on the community, fall on the taxpayer anyway. So um, when you look at Skid Row, for instance, there's a study about Los Angeles Skid Row, which has a huge population of people experiencing unsheltered homelessness over the course of one year. I mean, paramedics, public hospitals, jailing people and providing welfare services, somebody living outside costs the city of Los Angeles, almost $2,900 a month versus providing permanent supportive housing services costs an average of $600 a month. So that's 
like a huge savings. Um, and then in Denver, there was also a similar study which showed that providing housing services in Denver alone over the course of two years saved the city close to $18,000 per person over the course of two years. And again, that's comparing it to the city, which would otherwise have to pay for incarceration, emergency room stays, inpatient and outpatient care, and detox care. Again, all of which burden falls on the taxpayer versus simply providing access to affordable housing, which can mitigate and wipe out all of those other costs. And then when we talk about criminalizing itself, criminalizing homelessness has huge financial costs associated with it. So for instance, in Orange County, there's a study that found that over the course of one year, 11,600 hours of police time were devoted to homelessness-related calls. So solely calls of police responding to people saying like, there's a homeless person outside my building and I don't want them there. Or, you know, there's a homeless person panhandling in the street and that's illegal. So that's the equivalent of six and a half full-time deputies. So six and a half, I know you can't have half a person, but six and a half people whose full-time job over the course of the year was responding to homelessness. When we talk about public safety and like we can have a whole other podcast recording about what public safety means and the role of policing. But even if we buy into the fact that police are meant to promote public safety and that, you know, there's this idea of public safety that police are integral to, that's not a good use of resources at all. And I don't think anyone would agree that it is. Um, So, you know, there are huge, huge, huge financial costs beyond, you know, the social costs of criminalizing homelessness and of allowing homelessness to persist when we know that there are alternatives, when we know that those alternatives are viable and that they cost less. The craziest thing about this conversation is that there's financial motivation to get people housed. There's an emotional component to get people housed. If you if you can take the steps back that we talked about early on of just like, this is not someone's individual choice, that this is the path that they wanted to go on. Like looking at all of like the systemic things that get in the way where people, for forces outside of their control, they end up in this situation. Like, so there's the emotional component. There's the financial component. Why do we still have homelessness? How can we not figure this out? I know that's a loaded question. Yeah, it's the million dollar question. I think, I mean, it really, what we've been talking about, like it stems from these stereotypes and mythologies about why homelessness happens, about the type of people who experience homelessness. We can't, talk about homelessness without talking about the fact that Black people and people of color experience homelessness at disproportionate rates. And it's not a coincidence that the sort of ambivalence and tendency to ignore homelessness or to vilify people experiencing homelessness can't be disconnected from the fact that it it is primarily Black Americans who experience homelessness. Um, And we know that in all of these other aspects of how we deal with our society and our economy, that Black people are excluded from that society and from that economy, excluded from access to opportunity. And when there is violence and rampant violence, whether it's physical violence or political violence against people of color, it's ignored um, and people just don't care enough. And that comes from our country's like histories and histories of embedded racism. And so that is a huge part of why there's a reluctance, a collective reluctance to address homelessness because it's seen as like, you know, that's not us, that those people don't look like me and they aren't me. And I can never see myself being a part of that community. And therefore, like, it's not my problem to fix it. And the reality is most people in America are like a paycheck away, an emergency away, a catastrophe away from being housing insecure if they aren't already housing insecure. So homelessness is something that is like all 
you know, I won't say all of us because obviously there's like an immense amount of privilege and a lot of people have a social safety net that would never allow for it. But more Americans than not, it is realistic that they could experience homelessness in their lifetime and that someone they know could experience homelessness in their lifetime. So that kind of like disconnect of the us versus them is what I think prevents us from making change. But it's a really harmful disconnect that allows us to other people and to vilify people experiencing homelessness to assume that it's the result of their own poor choices. And for us as traditionally housed people to feel no accountability and no responsibility to doing something about it. And then, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, the, the general belief um, and in some ways reality that people who experience homelessness and people who do homelessness advocacy work are not a powerful enough political block to make it a political priority. So on a more positive note, hopefully, is there hope on the horizon? I think there's always hope. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't be doing the work. We wouldn't be able to keep doing it. So I do think there's hope. I do think there's a lot of people who are starting to understand homelessness more, starting to talk about homelessness more, and starting to talk about the ways in which homelessness is inextricably linked to all of these other social and economic injustices. So it's not, you know, something that exists in silo. Like, The fact that we have rampant homelessness and poverty can't be disconnected from the other kinds of discrimination and oppression that we're seeing in society that I think maybe for the first time we're starting to really prioritize and take seriously, you know, structural racism and violence against people who are queer and transgender folks. Like all of these different ways that we criminalize people for things that are beyond their control are all interrelated. And so I think the more that we can talk about intersectionality and like have these broader conversations about how different movements towards social and economic justice are connected, the more hope there is about really doing something about homelessness. A couple of, you know, key things that I think are positive are the District of Columbia and DC, where I'm based, um, was just the first um, jurisdiction in the country to make homelessness a protected class. And so what that means is that it's basically on par with race, gender, national origin, religion, where state actors, employers, landlords, healthcare providers cannot discriminate against someone solely for being homeless. So before we had homelessness as a protected class, you know, you could go into like a library, for instance, and someone could kick you out for being homeless. They couldn't kick you out for being a woman. They couldn't kick you out for being black because those are protected classes, but they could kick you out for being homeless. Now we have homelessness on par as a protected class with all of those other protected categories. And so that's a really important first step toward not just ending the criminalization of homelessness and the exclusion of unhoused people from public spaces, but toward like recognizing the fact that these disparities and this kind of discrimination exists pervasively across the board and is really ubiquitous and puts us, you know, a step closer toward creating housing as as a human right. Um, There's also homeless bills of rights um, that have been passed in a couple of different states and are being considered in a couple more. Um, I know Massachusetts is, in the process of considering a homeless bill of right. Rhode Island was the first state to pass a homeless bill of right several years ago. And those, you know, are really good policy indicators of the fact that those jurisdictions want to make sure that people who experience homelessness have a right to exist in public space. The enforcement mechanisms for those kinds of bills of rights can be a little bit tricky, but they are a really good, like, indication and and way of, you know, how we talk about homelessness matters. And so I think, like, having that rhetoric around these are rights that people who experience homelessness still have. They can exist in public spaces. They can't be criminalized for, you know, being in public spaces. Those are really important. And I think having more and more of those get on the books is 
a good thing. At the same time, though, we do have a lot of states criminalizing homelessness more and more. This has been an uptick since COVID in particular, when homelessness has been on the rise and unsheltered homelessness has been on the rise. Um, There's been more of a push in local and state governments to get rid of visible homelessness because people, you know, have these aesthetic concerns about what homelessness does to their communities, you know, in terms of property values, and they don't want to see it, and they don't want to confront it. And so we've seen several states over the course of the last six months criminalize outdoor camping and sleeping outside at the state level. In Tennessee, it's now a felony to camp outside. So what that means is that If you are arrested under that state bill, you now have a felony on your record, you know, aside from the fact that that prevents you from getting a job and accessing housing in the future, it prevents you from voting, it prevents you from being able to participate politically in your community. And so, you know, there are good things happening, but it almost feels like a one step forward, two steps back, you know, social change type of journey. (laughs) Specifically on like the fact that it's a a felony charge and not just like a misdemeanor or a fine, like that feels pointed and unnecessarily cruel because it's not just you diminish property value, but it's like by just existing, but then taking it a step further of we are going to make it so much more difficult for you to advocate for yourself and participate in a society in which we're telling people to do that. It seems needlessly cruel. Yeah, very cruel, cruel and unusual, some might say, Um, but yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it begs the question, like, who is this helping? And, and what is it for? When you criminalize someone for being homeless, you're not addressing homelessness at all. In fact, you're exacerbating homelessness and poverty because people with a criminal record certainly aren't going to find housing easier than when they didn't have a criminal record. It really exposes like a lot of the bad intentions, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase, of a lot of these policymakers. And sort of like their priorities when it comes to how we think about public safety, how we think about who belongs in our communities and who matters in our communities. And it's really, really sad and disheartening to see that even when these folks are presented with evidence that this isn't going to address homelessness and that this is just going to be bad, both for the humanity and dignity of people in their communities, but also for like the financial future of their communities. Um, And they still go through with these plans and still claim that it is an effort to end homelessness. It can be really frustrating, but we definitely have, you know, a huge movement of people within the Housing Not Handcuffs campaign and beyond that are committed to making changes. And we do have hope that we can do that with, you know, a lot of grassroots movement work and a lot of, you know, perseverance. (laughs) Yeah. So shifting away from uh, like necessarily like the issue space, but how do you kind of like this can be all consuming work. How do you take care of yourself while also trying to advocate for your cause? Definitely still working on figuring that out. But I think with this kind of work, especially like it's really hard to turn it off and be like, this is a nine to five because you're dealing with a social issue that's like so embedded in our society. And like, I can, you know, when I finish work, like I go outside and see homelessness and, you know, I'm obviously thinking about homelessness and poverty. And so it's really hard to turn it off. And so I think like one of the big things for me has been as much as I can try to like ignore the rationale logic in my head that like thinks I'm a bad person for trying to turn off work when I'm not at work, really trying to ignore that voice in my head and like, enjoy going out to dinner or enjoy what I'm doing outside of work 
even though that can be really hard, especially when you're working on a social issue that is visible that you like can see when you go outside, you know, like if you're someone who works on, you know, Medicaid expansion or whatever, like you don't necessarily go outside and see people like being denied healthcare all the time. So it's a little bit different in that way. But yeah, I mean, that's something I try to do and like prioritize rest and things that bring me joy, but it's definitely something that I'm still working on, like striking that balance. Yeah. That is something that we hear often is that it's, we've yet to talk to somebody that was like, oh yeah, I just uh, log off at five and I stop caring about this thing that I'm dedicating my life to solving. It makes it like meaningful work, but also it uh, all encompassing work. If someone wants to get involved or help on like their local level as they're going outside and seeing this in their local communities, what can they do? So I'll plug housingnothandcuffs.org. You can check it out and there's, you know, a get involved tab and you can see different ways that you can endorse our campaign and get involved. But at the local level, like reach out to local organizations doing homelessness work, whether it's providing services, like bringing food, doing needle exchange programs, you know, doing policy work at the local level and just see if you can volunteer. They always need more people, um, especially if you're someone who wants to work in communities with people experiencing homelessness and feel that you are equipped to, to do that. You know, reach out to those local organizations. And if you need help finding those local organizations, you can reach out to me or check out some of our local partners that are listed on the housing.handcuffs.org website. And that's always a, a really good place to get started, I think, is at the local level. Awesome. And how can our listeners support the National Homelessness Law Center as a whole? So when you see criminalization in your communities, if you see people being arrested for being outside or for being unhoused, um, or if you know that that's a law that's on the books, reach out to us so that we can be sure that we're keeping good track of those things. um, And we can work with you and any local providers to try and get those laws off the books and do advocacy. And then just check out our website, read the resources that we have. We have a ton of different publications. Um, If you want to learn more about anything that we've talked about and different studies and different research and things like that, that would be a good starting point. And then, you know, educating people in your life. Um, If you hear people like talking about how they're scared of the homeless or, you know, vilifying homeless people or saying that, you know, it's their own fault. Why can't they just get a job? Like, again, how we talk about homelessness matters. So if you're someone who's listening to this or who cares about homelessness and understands that it's the result of structural oppression and structural issues, say something to those friends, say something to those family members, say like, actually, you know, X, Y, Z and present them with some evidence, present them with a different side of the story. And, you know, as much as we can change minds at like the individual level, the more and more, you know, those friends will then tell their friends when they hear something or, and those friends will, you know, and, and hopefully it creates a ripple effect where we all start to think and feel a little bit differently about homelessness. Yeah, especially as we navigate through the, the upcoming holiday season, this is prime time to have those harder conversations because, I feel like the more families, more time family spends together, the less you can keep it just like surface level of like, how's everybody? And then at some point, whether it's this or another divisive subject will come up and it's like, how do, how do we talk about these things and how do we handle them? Empowering folks to like go confidently in those conversations and not just be like, ah, fine. That's important. Totally. again to our guest Lily Milwitt and the National Homelessness Law Center. Check out the show notes for other links and see how you can support their cause.
I also want to say thank you to our editor, Shay Dominguez, and our producing organization, MediaCause, a digital marketing agency specializing in moving missions forward for nonprofits and cause-based organizations. See their impact at MediaCause.org. And also, thanks to you, our listeners. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop by ifnotus.tv if you have suggestions on guests or topics we should cover in the future. Until next time, remember, change belongs to everyone.